This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Brendan Colley, welcome to Better Reading. Lovely to be chatting with you, Cheryl. Now, Brendan is uh, a writer and he's from South Africa and he lived and worked in the UK and Japan before settling in Tasmania. Brendan won the University of Tasmania Prize for Best New Unpublished Work in 2019 for The Signal Line, which is the book that we're talking about today and which is your debut fiction. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, wow. Congratulations. Thanks so much. It's been some journey and it's wonderful to finally get you I just want to mention to the copyright agency here because they have kindly helped us support your book and we're very grateful. So, you know, uh, what took you from South Africa to UK to Japan and when did you get to Australia? Tell me about that journey. Yeah, so I actually left South Africa right after university. It was quite common. I'm a teacher and, you know, as a lot of um, us did, we would take up a two-year visa option to go and teach in the UK. And, well, the journey didn't start there and I ended up teaching all over. I did um, a couple of years in Japan and back to um, back to the UK and back to Japan again. And along the way in there, I met my wife in Australia. And, and so that's how ah, I went to this side of the world. Right, right. Talk to me about leaving South Africa because it is, it's not a country, um, if you like, where you just get up and, and think that, you know, I'm going to migrate somewhere else because of the complexity of of the country itself. I, I'd imagine it's it's an emotional kind of break, isn't it? Were you thinking those things when you left? That's interesting yeah. because I um I love South Africa, but I always knew that I wanted to go and experience the world. It's something maybe I've come to understand a little bit more deeper into my journey and I didn't maybe understand it at the time. But um I was born in Durban. And I went to primary school then. And at that time, my family sort of, we we relocated to Pretoria and then Johannesburg. And I went through this period where I went to five high schools. And I think by the time I finished university, I maybe didn't feel as connected to the place that I was at, you know. And I, I had this sort of nomadic um, desire or spirit to keep moving. And even when I went abroad, um, I was immediately trying to figure out um, how can I stay abroad for longer than two years. And um, it's it's interesting to me how um, I sort of I do want to keep moving. And it's only the last 10 years living in Hobart that I started feeling like I'm in a place that feels like home. It took a long time to get here. Mm. I want to go back to South Africa and I often think this, like, you know, my parents 
they were immigrants and they came from Lebanon and largely to, to, you know, flee poverty and war and to provide a better life for their children. I have lots of relatives there still. I have cousins my age. I've got, you know, uncles and aunts. And with all that's going on there, with all the atrocities that happen in that country, they are just trying to live a normal life. You know, they're sending their kids to school, they're trying to get together for meals, they're going out to restaurants, and that becomes difficult for those those people, but it also becomes the only way of life. Mm. Did you it's, feel the same way? It's interesting because, I mean, the last seven or eight years of living in South Africa, you know, final years of high school and 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 into university, were probably the most exciting time because that was framed by Nelson Mandela yeah. uh, being released, um, our first first democratic elections. I was in both stadiums when South Africa won the Rugby World Cup and the South African African Nations Cup and to experience that coming together on the mm. street, which only sport can do, mm. and I leave. <laughs> and, and right at the point, right, where we're beginning sort of a new phase that that we all wanted but in and amongst that um things are normal to you which which shouldn't really be normal in terms of safety and security and so forth and the last time I went back to South Africa you feel you feel so disconnected from everything and maybe not in tune with the thing you sort of worry that you may be not as aware as you should be and so that does become a challenge but it is difficult for me to speak to because I've really do have a very small micro family and the last time that I did visit South Africa was actually for my father's funeral a long time ago in 2003 and my mother and brother are in the UK now so although I have a lot of good friends in South Africa physically I'm trying to get to the UK to see mm. my, my mother and my brother. So um, mm. South Africa is definitely a part of me, but it also feels like it's a part, a part of my past as opposed to my more recent presence. Mm. Tell me about, you know, any cultural shocks you had when you first went to the UK because I travelled to, you know, and I talk this, about this a lot on this podcast, I, I travelled to the United States quite a bit, you know, mainly California, but, um, you know, I've been just about everywhere. And what struck me the first time I went was I expected it to be something I knew because I'd grown up with it through television. They're largely people that speak English and I thought that that would be an easy connection. But what I have noticed is we are, I mean, the only thing we have in common is a bit of language and that's about it (laughs) culturally, you know. And, I mean, I think I experienced exactly what you've just described over there and but with a sense of wonder. That mm-hmm. it's sort of it looks familiar, but it feels and and sounds and hits you completely differently. But I'll tell you which it was even the the greater sort of um, experience that was more surprising is after living in Japan for so long. And expats talk about this is the reverse culture shock that you feel when you come from a place mm-hmm. like Japan back to say like we did in Melbourne. Mm. where you Um, really are going through uh, an adjustment in terms of assimilating, you know, back into maybe that that mindset that 
that is sort of who you are. I, it's it's funny because uh, my wife and I, when we came back from Japan, we taught English over there, and um, you immediately start going through a process of getting all the colloquial and slang and you start speaking this very standard way and slowly and people would would always be commenting, why are you speaking so slow? <laughs> it, it took us a long time to get up to a pace of talking that felt normal. Mm. Um, is there anything in Japan that you want, you know, just before COVID hit, I think it was a year before COVID hit, I went to Tokyo for the very first time. And I just loved it. I love the diverse, you know, well, diversity in the culture that they live in because they're a monoculture, so there's not that much diversity. But it is completely such a shock. It really, really does kind of touch on all the senses, doesn't it? It's There's so much there. Um, yeah. And I enjoyed it very much. I was there for a, a two, two weeks, but I, I was drawn to it and I definitely would go back. Yes, and, and it's such an easy place to live and and to love and um it was difficult for us to leave I can imagine Um, yeah because you know and it's it's safe you know if my wife we work shifts if she's getting home at nine o'clock you know there's just not one care that she's not going to be able to make that commute and walk and be 100% safe and it's clean and and it's interesting and Yes, we still experience hustle from not being back there and um, we're always, whenever we travel, we see if we can pass through because yeah. um, it, it feels like a sort of a home and it's important to us because that's where we met. And, yeah. got and why then did you leave Japan and come to Australia? Tell me about that journey. I think that was um, sort of a natural thing. It didn't really take much conversation to decide we were going to come to Australia or back to South Africa, which seemed to be, I suppose, the the choices. But it was more case that the type of work that we were doing, although we loved it, it's the best work I've ever done. I mean, teaching English to Japanese students high school students, housewives, businessmen, every kind of demographic you can think. Like it was a dream to wake up and go do this job and I could still write three or four hours a day and mm-hmm. and, and do everything. But it really is an entry-level job where it's it's a great sort of first job. So it, it really, it more was a time to how we sort of need to kind of, you know, go to the next phase of living <laughs> as opposed to being abroad and and, and being amongst those Well, things. I guess it feels like, you know, you've got to grow up at some point, even though you are growing up. Do you know what I mean? But there's different responsibility when you're not travelling. I feel as though people that live abroad for a long time, it's always like, you know, they're reluctant to come home for those reasons that they, they don't want to settle in, they don't want to, you know, they don't want anything permanent to happen, you know, that sort of thing. I don't know why I had it in my mind, but when I left South Africa, I was like, I want to travel and live abroad. And that's why I chose teaching because I knew I could continue to develop like a, a, you know, a a thematic sort of resume while I was sort of fulfilling this dream of traveling and living abroad. And um, I had it in my mind that I want to be abroad for 10 years. I I would, I I had this idea, I would accept five, but I want to be abroad for 10. And by the time my wife and I settled down in Australia, it had been 11 years. Yeah, so wow. we had that full experience that we both sort of craved. And so when you came to Australia, 
did you again feel the cultural differences between, well, I guess now you pass South Africa, of course there's cultural difference between Japan, but in terms of way of life, did you? what was your expectation and how did you feel about that? Honestly, that was very easy. Yeah. And, um, I do think that there is an affinity between the South Africans and between the mm. Australians and um and it was a lot easier for me than it was for my wife because she felt like she was coming home, whereas mm. I felt like I was going I was going to a place that was going to be home, but it felt like I was still travelling and having that. It was still an ad- adventure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So when did writing start to become a priority for you? Like when were you thinking I need to be writing something? I can pin it to, I mean, I can pin it to a specific date. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. I would have to look at the calendar to tell you the date, but I know the mo- there was a, it, was, it was a precise moment. The, the book actually deals with this, so it, does, it is sort of relatable to some of the themes and ideas that I explored in the book. But growing up, my dream was to be a professional soccer player. Incredibly powerful dream and driving force in my life, and I committed everything to it. And um, but obviously, you reach you, you you know by a certain age whether or not that dreams a reality. And um, it continued to be a very useful dream because it paid for university. I was on a, a bursary, a scholarship, so um, it really was beneficial. But during that period. I knew that as soon as I finished university, I was going to stop soccer dead because there's no way that I could just play socially what had been something that was an aspiration and that there was going to be this big vacuum of time. And I just remember thinking that I so loved waking up every day having a dream to sacrifice for, to commit to, to suffer for, and I want another one. And the reason why I chose writing was I already had this passion. I was sort of writing lyrics for a pianist. We sort of thought we could be an Elton John, Bernie Taupin sort of pair. And so it was the only other thing that I loved doing. And that December, I thought I would see whether I could write something different. I wrote a book of short stories. Then I wrote two plays all in the space of about three or four months. And then I wrote, I started writing a screenplay and I was like, this is it. And that was 26 years ago. Yeah, wow. And and since then, I've maintained a writing routine of two to four hours a night on top of whatever job I'm doing. 
Oh, wow, every day. Yeah, I mean, when I went to the UK, I immediately worked out that if I worked two days one week and three days the next week, I could write the rest of the time. When I was in Japan for six years, my shift was 9 o'clock to 12 p.m. to 9 o'clock at night, so I wrote for three and a half hours every single day. So it's literally part of who I am, irrespective of whether I was going to get published. And that's what I loved about writing was unlike soccer, if I wasn't good enough, no one could ever take it away from me. You can just Mm. write forever. And fortunately, I did that because it took 25 years. (laughs) That's an interesting, I like that comparison, actually, because you can. But my experience in talking to writers is the urge to be published Mm. so that that book is read is as strong as the writing process. Absolutely. When I first started writing, everything was about finishing whatever project I was working on for the first 10 years or so it was um, screenplays, but for the last 15 years it's been novels because I wanted to finish what I was, there was such, there was an angst to finish so that you could be in a query process. But after about 15 years of that, I really needed to revisit my reasons for writing because it, it was maybe looking like that wasn't going to happen. So surely there had to be another motivation. Why? Why because was that not going to happen? The novel before this took me six and a half years to write and was roundly rejected. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I really was questioning whether or not I could produce, write something that was publishable. Now, it's quite possible the novel's good enough because you need an intersection of luck and you need to find the right person who believes in Absolutely. your story. Absolutely. And we absolutely make an assumption that if a novel's every novel that's good enough gets published and that it just doesn't work like that. But I was like, well, I'm throwing a lot of time at this. Is it going to be okay 20 years from now if I'm still unpublished? And I just wanted an answer for that. And that was when I started writing this book and it was like, yes, there's reward enough in the act of sitting down and creating something. That act is worth something and changes a person. And, yes, I'm still going to, on the other end of it, see if I can find a home and get a book published. But, like, it's amazing because for the first time, joy started coming back into those nightly writing sessions that were there in my 20s but maybe were missing in my 30s. And this novel is... I actually used this novel to explore that question because the protagonist in this novel is an aspiring violist and is questioning whether or not he has the requisite talent to realise his dream, and he's facing that question. So I was, as I was answering that question myself, I was really dealing with that through this character. This Mm. novel was answering that question for me. Mm. And ironically, mate, is the one that arrives into the world. And how did you, did you get a sense that this was the novel, that finally this is it? Did you feel that when you were writing it? No, but I did feel something. I felt this. So every novel I write, even the one now I'm currently working on, you're always trying to do everything as well as you can. I'm assuming that's what we all do in everything. But for me, when I start a new project, there's always one aspect of craft or one element in writing that I want to lift. So I'm trying to make everything as good as I can, but in my own writing, I'm like, okay, that's a a weakness. And in my previous novel, 
um, that didn't get published, I really felt that the characters didn't feel human. They felt very much at the service of the plot. They spoke um, clever words. They just didn't feel. And so my my goal with this novel was, at the very least, I want this to feel like as much as the central conceit is implausible and you really need to suspend your belief to buy into the story, can I write a cast of characters that feel like real people? And I didn't know if I was writing something that was publishable, but I knew that I was writing characters that, to me at least, felt like they were reacting and behaving and speaking as real people. Mm-hmm. Because it is, it's that mix, isn't it? You finally get the craft, but you've also got to get the story, the tone. Yeah. So with that manuscript, did you then enter it into the prize, the University of Tasmania prize? Is that what was the path to publication then? It was a long path. It took two and a half years yeah. before Barrier Transit Lounge um, took a chance on me and I remember before I answer your question, um, I was in Seattle of all places speaking to someone who I crossed paths with literally for one afternoon and he was a a, a singer-songwriter. And he said that um, for every artist, there's someone out there who wants your work, but it's the artist's job to find them. <laughs> and I have held on to that for so long. Mm. And so the thing that really kept me resilient in the query through the querying process was that I just hadn't found a person who wants this. The path though was sort of interesting because I went about it in a very sort of methodical way where, you know, you st- I started querying agents at the same time I'm looking for any sort of um literary prize competitions that I might enter, not yet the University of Tasmania prize in the Premier's Awards. and But once I had exhausted the agents, and there were only about a half a dozen of them, but already the feedback, even though they were ultimately passing on the manuscript, all of it was very personalised with requests for page. So I knew it was... It, you know, everyone was reading 100 pages or 200 pages. It wasn't like I wasn't getting the kind of rejection I got. Okay. So, and then I started querying publishing houses and only a couple because, you know, you know, right out the gate, like one requested pages and then three chapters and then a manuscript. And, you know, they sit on that for a year and a half. Now you're waiting before you query the next one. And it was about... Um, Two years later, well, the awards were two years later, but you had to submit about a year and a half before. But at that point, I was already working on the next novel, and I funnily enough said to my wife, oh, I don't think I'm going to submit it. I I need to say goodbye to it now. I don't want something else. And she just said, you're absolutely mad. You have to submit it. You have to honour the manuscript. So I submitted it. And then, lo and behold... I'm lucky enough to win that, which then opens the door a little wider. It does indeed, yeah. How did you feel? You know, it felt, um, I felt lucky and it felt nice. I think if this had have happened 12 years ago, I would have been like screaming, running down the road doing cartwheels. But because like my reasons had changed, the book had already given me everything I needed. And then this was just like 
that's so nice and amazing. But it was it was like a quiet feeling as opposed to this eruption <laughs> of, of, you know, and um, I didn't feel relieved, but I just felt very lucky. Mm. And the book is called The Signal Line. Did it then give you more confidence to write your second? Has it changed that for you? Um, truthfully, um, it hasn't. The only pressure that it's created is that I want every book at least technically to be better than the one before because every book has its own magic. So you don't know what the next book is going to, how it will resonate. Mm. But, um, yeah, there, there were still things in that book that I would like to improve on with the one that I'm doing now and which I'm trying to do. Mm. With the signal line, we'll talk about that a little bit. Do you want to just kind of give me a synopsis of what it's about? But what I want to ask you is it's kind of a little bit of, um, uh, I don't know what you call it, mystery or ghost story. At the same time, it's quite realistic. Tell me about that. Firstly, just give me the premise and uh, we'll take it from there. So the story really revolves around two brothers, um, yeah. our protagonist, Gio, who's an aspiring um, violist, as I said before, and he um, he is living abroad in Italy. He's on the audition circuit trying to win a place in a, in a major European orchestra. And he's come home for one reason, to sell the family house that his brother and he have inherited, their parents have passed on. And he knows that this is going to be a problem. The brother doesn't want to let go of this house because it holds memories of their family, but there's a 10-year age gap between these two and Gio has very different memories of, of his upbringing to his brother. But immediately upon arriving home, they get drawn into this very surreal situation because Wes, the older brother, is a detective in the Tasmanian police and he's sort of investigating the situation where there are these 27 Italians who are currently sequestered in the psychiatric unit at Royal Hobart Hospital, completely distressed and disoriented and panicked, and they are claiming that they have arrived in Hobart from Italy by train. They got on a train. That's a long uh, way. <laughs> Orvieto, just outside yeah. of Rome. Yeah. They got off in Hobart. Yeah. And, well, clearly they must be insane, except um, soon after arriving on the scene is this Swedish man um, whose name is Sten, and he is a ghost train hunter. He has been, he claims that they have inadvertently got on this ghost train that he's been chasing for 40 years. It's expelled them here and that that train is starting to make, is going to start making appearances on the old abandoned tramway lines around, around Tasmania and he wants to intercept it. And my two brothers become caught up in this person's mission and then it just gets a little bit crazier and weirder while the two brothers are trying to resolve their own sort of personal dispute. Yeah, it is. It's it's a really quirky novel. It's so fresh and refreshing and it's it's quite unusual. Uh, we're out of time, Brendan. It's called The Signal Line. Go out and get it. It's certainly a good read. Congratulations. Thank you, Cheryl. It's wonderful chatting with you. Thank you. 
If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.